fall sports. And so I know that there's soccer and football and uh, baseball and you name it going on. And several of our families are being pulled in lots of different directions on these days. But bless you, doing the best you can to be here from week to week. As we'll find out again today, the book of Hebrews thinks that uh, this is a pretty important thing to do, which we are doing here together today. So uh, we gathered Friday night. This is probably the reason why Aaron is saying things incorrectly today is because he was riding roller coasters on Friday night at Magic Mountain. And uh, I, I, after many years of riding roller coasters with our teenagers, this year finally kind of entered into retirement and I went, found a nice table, sat there for about five hours. It was awesome. Kids would come by, um, yeah, yeah, that's it, that's it. And I would try to encourage them and send them back out, you can do it. And uh, they had, I think we had a great time. Lots of, lots of spinning heads, I'm sure, as people awoke even yesterday morning. So, uh, be sure and buy some, some sugar, I mean some baked goods, and support our teens. Love what they're doing in terms of even their Sunday morning, uh, Sunday school hour is really kind of this mission-minded thinking and, and, and engaging about how we as a youth group and we as a church can be engaging the world in mission. And this is one of the ways, so along with getting an outstanding cookie, and I've had my sister's cookies, they are a dollar a cookie value, I would agree. Um, along with outstanding baked goods, you can help um, send our teens as they are sent in mission. So let's, uh, let's be a part of that as well. Uh, I'm going to let the kids be dismissed for Children's Church, and uh, you guys have a great time. If you're uh, a kid, you can get a high five from somebody and go have a blast. Yes. There's just something about getting a high five. I don't know what it is. You get one and everything is just better. Um, our, our, uh, we're, we're in this study of the book of Hebrews, and we just started it last week, so we're just barely getting going. Our, our, our growth groups met for the first time this week, and if you were in one, how many went to a growth group this week? Just raise your hand. How many went to a growth group? Good for you. And um, I won't make those of you who didn't go raise your hand as well, but... Um, I would encourage you. I would encourage you to check it out. I, I got to go to the Venzers group on Wednesday night, um, several students and me, uh, and it was outstanding. And we had such a great time just digging deeper into God's Word and really investigating, and not, not from kind of a scientific perspective, but from a desire to grow together as the body of Christ, investigating what the Scriptures have to say to us. And so well, it's not too late. In fact, I think the table... You still have a table out there, Danny? You can see Danny right after a church today and see what group might work for you. If you can't go like every week, but you can go most of the time, still connect with one of these groups and, and, uh, and be a part. So we're into the book of Hebrews. And uh, as I was looking at the passage for this week, it really got me thinking actually about some of the more memorable experiences that I've had in my life with alarms and with like alerts or with warnings and uh, one of them just happened while our family was on vacation at our family cabin up in Idaho. In the middle of the night, the smoke alarm just goes off with this horrific shriek, just piercing the silent mountain air. I mean, it's just like so peaceful, 
quiet and just interrupting it with this. And, and it wasn't because there was any smoke. It was because the batteries needed to be replaced. And have you experienced this? They're, they're definitely programmed to go off at night, right? Somehow, somewhere, somebody is controlling the smoke alarms of our houses to make sure they go off in the middle of the night. Yeah. Uh, well, of course, I didn't really know where it was in the room, so I'm finding it, taking it off. And this is one of the ones that you have to actually unplug. So, needless to say, it was quite disturbing. Um, I, I was also thinking about uh, a time several years ago now when I was out at Westmont College playing basketball, and I go out there still. I try to go out a couple times a week at 6 a.m. to play basketball. You're all welcome to join me anytime if you can. But um, this particular time, I was, I'm, I'm usually half conscious when I get there, and uh, usually pretty sleepy, still rubbing the sleep out of my eyes, and and uh, this particular time, I, for some reason, as I went to lay my keys down on the floor, I reached up against what I thought to be the blank wall and instead landed right on the fire alarm. Uh-huh, yeah, I did. And I set off the fire alarm and at 6 a.m. on the Westmont campus in the gym, and I thought it was waking up the entire campus, along with the city of Montecito, along with all of Santa Barbara, it was so loud. I soon found out that that alarm rings straight to the fire station down at the bottom of the, uh, of the, of the street there. And so the coach that was with us had to run to the office. He's looking at me like, what are you doing? And uh, he's running to the office to call the fire department, call the security so they can call off the, the warning. False alarm, false alarm. Uh, the last one that came to my mind was when our daughter was, uh, was born, and you weren't here yet, so you um, don't remember this, but when you were being born, when my daughter was being born, uh, we went into the hospital as Kyla was going into labor and getting ready to deliver Katie, and, and uh, we thought everything was going pretty well, seemed like it was good timing, and, but we, as soon as we got into the room, and me and the nurse and Kyla... Kyla's water broke, and sorry if that's too graphic for some of you guys, but, uh, and, and Katie fell onto her umbilical cord in such a way that her, um, you know, like heart rate started to plummet, uh, just things like that, and uh, so there was some concern. The nurse, with great calm, just kind of tried a couple of things, but nothing seemed to alleviate the plummeting heart rate, and so my heart rate was starting to go up. And she looked at me with Kyla on the bed and the nurse on one side and me on the other side. And she said very calmly, James, could you push that blue button on the wall right there? And I'm like, code blue, code blue. (laughs) And uh, I don't even know what that means, but it sounded right. But within moments, the the room was just crawling with nurses. and, uh, And soon, the crisis was averted. Katie was okay. Kyla was okay. Most importantly, I was okay. <laughs> so, I mean, here's the deal. Sometimes alar- false alarms, they just drive us crazy. The, the battery that needs replacing in the middle of the night, the fire alarm at 6 a.m. that some goofball sets off in the gym. But the, the code blue, I mean, when the alarm is right and when the alarm is good and it hits the nail on the head, then then we say thank you to the alarm. Thank you to the warning. Thank you for that process by which we might be awakened, by which we might be 
alerted. Now, we're, uh, again, uh, we're looking at this study of the book of Hebrews, and uh, it's known, many refer to it as the letter to the Hebrews, but as I mentioned last week, it's not, most scholars think it's not technically a letter. There's no salutations, hello, how are you today, and I'm writing this to you. Most scholars think more it's a sermon, if you missed that last week. It's it's a written sermon from this passionate preacher who is writing down his concerns and expressing them to the Hebrew people. This, 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 what most think was probably a small house church that was struggling as Jewish Christians to maintain their Christian faith amidst a culture that was uh, pulling them by uh, maybe family and friends who were still uh, part of the Jewish tradition, maybe pulling them back to Jewish traditions, or pressured by the society at large that was perhaps calling them and pressuring them out of any faith whatsoever. Here is this pastor, this preacher, writing to these believers, inviting them and warning them because they're in danger of slipping away from their faith in Christ. And and he's, he's pulling out all the stops. Anything he can do to communicate with great passion, with great urgency, even desperation, we'll see at times, to awaken and to alert these people to the danger that is all around them. Um, And and though it would have probably been easier for him to talk about other things, for it always is, especially in the church, this preacher is not afraid to confront the folks, not afraid to warn them of the consequences that await them if they continue their current trajectory, and at the same time to point them to a new direction, point them to a new path that will take them into God's future for them. And so there are several places throughout this sermon where the preacher offers a word of warning. And we'll, uh, we'll note those along the way. And we come really to the first this morning at the beginning of chapter 2. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. It'll be on the screen as well. But it's Hebrews chapter 2. And I'm going to read the whole chapter. It's just 18 verses. And I'm praying that these words that the preacher sounded to the people, the original hearers, would resound resound across the centuries now to our own ears and our own hearts as we attend to his word today. Let's stand. Can we, as I read these words, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 to 18, and I'm reading from the NLT, the New Living Translation. So we must listen very carefully to the truth we have heard, or we may drift away from it. For the message God delivered through angels has always stood firm, and every violation of the law and every act of disobedience was punished. So what makes us think we can escape if we ignore this great salvation that was first announced by the Lord Jesus Himself and then delivered to us by those who heard Him speak? And God confirmed the message by giving signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit whenever He chose. And furthermore, it is not angels who will control the future world we are talking about. For in one place the Scriptures say, what are mere mortals that you should think about them or a son of man that you should care for him? Yet you made them only a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory 
and honor, and you gave them authority over all things. Now, when it says all things, it means nothing is left out. But we have not yet seen all things put under their authority, but we do see, what we do see is Jesus, who was given a position a little lower than the angels, and because he suffered death for us, he is now crowned with glory and honor. Yes, by God's grace, Jesus tasted death for everyone. God, for whom and through whom everything was made, chose to bring many children into glory. And it was only right that He should make Jesus, through His suffering, a perfect leader, fit to bring them into their salvation. So now Jesus and the ones He makes holy have the same Father That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them His brothers and sisters. For He said to God, I will proclaim Your name to My brothers and sisters. I will praise You among Your assembled people. He also said, I will put My trust in Him. That is, I and the children God has given Me. Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could He die. And only by dying could He break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could He set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. We also know that the Son did not come to help angels. He came to help the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, it was necessary for Him to be made in every respect like us, His brothers and sisters, so that He could be our merciful and faithful High Priest before God. Then He could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people since He Himself has gone through suffering and testing. He is able to help us when we are being tested. It's the Word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. And you may be seated. It is a lengthy Word of the Lord. Thanks for your patience with that. And I uh, honestly looked for different ways that I might trim my reading this uh, for this, of this passage, but every time I started to, I thought, oh, I can't leave that out. I can't leave that out. And I trust that even just by the hearing of the word today, that our hearts are being shaped and transformed and made new. Well, the warning at the beginning of the chapter is for the people to listen very carefully to the truth that they have heard, so that they might not, did you hear the words, drift away, so that they might not drift away. The NIV translates it a little bit different. Instead of saying for the people to listen very carefully, it says this, we must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. Failure to listen carefully to the message of Jesus, to pay more careful attention to the gospel that has been brought in and through the life of Jesus. To move forward in faith, this writer says, will likely lead to drifting on the part of these first Christian readers. And what was true then is true today. N.T. Wright, who's written our small group study book, he says it like this, that this warning was particularly for those who had grown up in a Christian family, maybe been part of a Christian community for as long as they can remember. He says it like this, it's all too easy to suppose that we can take the pressure off, that we can allow other people to do the praying, the thinking, the serious business. We'll go along for the ride. 
We'll stop putting so much effort into it. We'll go with the flow. But for the careless and for the complacent Christian, for the lethargic and largely apathetic believer, for unconcerned or even indifferent communities of faith both then and now who are willing to just go with the flow and maintain the status quo, this writer has two words that I hope will stick in your brain today. And they are this. Drift happens. Drift happens. The word the, um, the author uses here for drift is a nautical term. I really should have had Ken or Darren or some of you other sailors come and speak at this point because I have already said more than I know about sailing. <laughs> but it's a nautical term that was used when early writers would speak of sailing, speak of ships. And as Santa Barbarans know from observing Fool's Anchorage out off of East Beach, if a ship isn't firmly anchored, and you can show that picture, Robin, if a ship isn't firmly anchored, it can drift in the breeze, or the wind, or the storm. It can lose its mooring and eventually be destroyed on a sandy or a rocky shore somewhere. Or we might think of it this way. That a boat in the midst of strong winds or rough waters where unless a firm hand is kept on the tiller of the rudder, I looked up those words, it may drift off course and end up somewhere far from the charted destination. Fool's anchorage is where, sadly, a lot of us live and their drift happens where there is negligence, and we can throw out every word that we can think of here, where there is lack of attention, where there's a loss of focus, whether it be in boats or in the life of a believer, drift happens. And often that drift can be disastrous, if not deadly. We've seen it with our own lives, haven't we? Perhaps uh, you've gone a week and you've suddenly realized or actually a month, or several months, and you've realized that I haven't picked up my Bible. I haven't read Scripture. Maybe you wake up on a Friday morning, and you simply recognize and you say to yourself, I haven't talked to God all week. I haven't prayed to God, oh, except for that one crisis prayer the other night. I haven't prayed to God this week. One week it's a traveling, and then it's a soccer game, and it's a work, and it's traveling again, and suddenly you look around and you say, I haven't been to worship in six weeks. And drift is close by. The Hebrew writer would argue, and I think our experience would bear it out, that when things like this happen, when we by our own negligence or distraction or whatever the cause might be, when we stop paying attention, when we stop listening to the message that we have heard, when we close our ears to it, put our blinders on, 
we can't help but drift in our lives with God. Our anchors are pulled up and we're vulnerable, friends. We're vulnerable to the winds of the world that can blow us far off course. I don't know if this has ever happened to you. This may be personal testimony, but perhaps it's happened to a few of us here this morning. When we stop paying attention to the truth, we've heard we soon find ourselves thinking thoughts that we had never thought before, or not for a long time at least. Self-centeredness, negativity, these things begin to creep into our thinking. We begin or find ourselves beginning to make decisions, perhaps, and act in ways that we had never considered when we, would, when we were walking close to God in faith. And suddenly these, these options are viable for us, and we're beginning to feel that drift. We become more easily influenced, and we see this all the time, by the voices that are coming at us from the media and from culture and from friends and from others telling us what is important and what we should value, how we should spend our time, how we should spend our money, what should be important to us, instead of being influenced by the voice of God speaking into our lives, reminding us of what is true, what is honorable, what is lovely, what is pure, what is admirable. Maybe we don't know what is happening to us. Maybe this all happens and we're not even aware of it. Maybe we're all too aware of it. But we're drifting. We're going backwards and not forward in faith. And so the Hebrew writer says, do not let this happen. I was, uh, I was a teacher's assist- assistant for a, a professor by the name of Roger Hahn when I was in seminary. And uh, some of you have maybe met Dr. Hahn or read some of his writing. Just a great guy. Very, I, I was at a conference with him this summer and uh, remains just as, if not more, brilliant, but also personable and just engaging. And, and he was the kind of professor in seminary that, that students would kind of go to, to, to get counsel and just kind of not only learn about the New Testament, which was his specialty, but, but about life and about ministry. And, and I had the opportunity as his, as his faculty assistant to be in his office grading papers or filing papers. As brilliant as he is, his office was kind of a mess. But uh, uh, I, I had the opportunity to be in there working often when other students would come in for counseling or just for meeting with Dr. Hahn about a paper or about some other issue. And I would try to kind of stay to my own business and not, you know, listen in. That didn't work very well. Because usually what would happen is that these students would ask him a question, it would kind of lead to one thing and then the next thing, and, and it would really be getting to some really great stuff, some really important issues that I knew in my heart. I've heard Dr. Hahn talk about these things. I've asked him these same questions, and he helped me so deeply, so, so greatly. But what would happen, happen, happen so often is that the, the students who would be asking these questions, when Dr. Hahn was not the kind of person who would interject or kind of speak over somebody, he was a great listener. And a lot of times, great listeners are kind of taken for being passive or you know, inattentive. And so it would seem that these students would think that Dr. Hahn either wasn't listening or didn't have anything to say, so they would just keep 
talking and further explaining themselves. It was almost like, well, he didn't get it that time. Let me try it another way. And I would be over in the corner filing papers, grading papers, thinking, just be quiet. <laughs> just stop talking. Doing everything I could not to turn around and say, shut up. Just let him talk. He's got gold in here. He's ready to pour out just nuggets of wisdom if you'll just shut your trapper, you know, your yapper, whatever it's called. And, and instead, I would sit and finally, finally, they would stop talking and Dr. Hom would just, in his calm but powerful manner, just unleash these great words of encouragement or counsel and wisdom. And they would hear and listen well. Friends, we whether it's our, our distraction, whether it's our own choices, whether it's our um, inability to focus, whatever it might be that's causing us, we are not listening well. And this Hebrew writer says, don't stop listening to this message. This message, I think Dr. Hahn's got some good things to say. The gospel has the ability to transform and to sustain and to strengthen and to save you like nothing else. Listen to it well. Do not stop listening carefully. Pay attention. Don't just hold on. Don't just maintain the status quo. Press forward. Forward in faith. And the writer's logic is simply this. If you followed a little bit of this as I read, people in this day had been convinced that Angels were involved in the, in the mediating of the Old Testament law from God to Moses to the people. And uh, the angels were kind of the, the helpers in this process. It's not really spoken of in the Old Testament, but people of this day had gotten this idea that angels were significant in helping to mediate the law between God and Moses. And so this writer argues that if the law that was given by angels who, remember, as we said last week, are inferior to the Son, if this provides for a quick and just punishment for every violation of sin, then he goes on to say, how much more important must it be for us to give attention to the message that has been proclaimed by the far superior Son of God? If the angels gave this message, and it held people to account for their acceptance or rejection of it, then what can we even imagine will happen to those of us who reject this message that is being given now by the Son? And the writer, preacher, doesn't necessarily state what those consequences will be. It's as if he doesn't even want to think about them. It's as if he doesn't even want to imagine what those might, not, might be. Simply, he's saying, we dare not ignore this salvation that Jesus has made available to us. God has confirmed it by signs and wonders, by the giving of the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. He can't even again bring himself to imagine what sort of consequence awaits for those who reject the word of Christ. Drift happens among individuals, and even among communities of faith. When we neglect the Word, when we're unconcerned with prayer, when we stop showing up, or we keep showing up, 
but just go through the motion. We leave ourselves wide open. And the writer seems to be implying here, and I want you to be sure to catch this, that there comes a time when it is too late to anchor the soul. The current will have become too swift, and our lack of concern will have let us drift past the point of no return. Now, hear me on this, because it isn't that God can't rescue us even at that point. He always can. He's made provision for that. He can always reach to us wherever we are. But it is that we get to a point where we are disconnected from Christ. So disconnected that it's hard to see Him. And the inevitable consequences will come upon us. And those are a life lived without God, a life lived without redemption, without freedom, without hope, a life lived with only human sin and selfishness as its resources. And as depressing and negative as that is, the writer is clear, we will not escape it. Those are his words. We won't escape it. Listen, if this was a false alarm, I wouldn't be sharing it with you this morning. If this was just a dead battery in the middle of the night, or some guy leaning against a a fire alarm, then we would move right past it. But this alarm is for the people of this original audience, and it's for us today. Thankfully, the preacher assures us in the rest of the chapter, and even the very last verse is a perfect kind of summary to everything that he goes on to say in the next few verses that there is one who is able to help us. And here's a great word of grace. So please hear it this morning. This same Jesus, who is far superior to the angels, who is announced and made possible and holds us to account for hearing and receiving this great gospel message, is available to all those who would call out his name My heart will sing. Did you hear it this morning? No other name. Jesus. Jesus. My heart will sing no other name than Jesus. And in a rhetorical onslaught that I read to us this morning, spanning verses, if you're looking at your Bible, about verses 5 to 18, our writer goes on to speak of Jesus using a variety of images meant to assure us again and again of this truth, that this Jesus is is willing and He is able to help us respond to this great message of grace. Wright says again, there is nothing we face today or tomorrow or the next day in which Jesus cannot sympathize, help, and rescue us and through which he cannot forge a way for us to God's new world. So let me just highlight a couple here really quick. Right here in just these few verses, the writer declares and demonstrates who Jesus is. And I think I've got these on here. You can just hit that one. Jesus is, first of all, he's he's Lord. And the writer says that that he uses Psalm 8, which is a really weird kind of thing to do, but he does it because he can. And he uses Psalm 8 to speak 
that, that, it's, that the psalm speaks really of humans being made a little lower than the angels. And he uses this to speak of, of actually ultimately to speak of Jesus as being in his human form, being made a little lower than the angels. And yet through his death and through his resurrection being exalted to be crowned with glory and honor. He's speaking of Jesus who becomes the Lord of all that is, not by grasping for power and declaring how mighty he is, but instead by dying. By taking on human form and dying on a cross. And through that, this writer says, he has been given all authority. This Jesus has authority over everything. He's not only Lord, though. He also says that Jesus is our leader. And uh, another way of translating that word would be to say that he's our champion. And the image here that the author is using is this, this idea, remember in the Old Testament, when, when uh, Israel's enemies would send out one person like Goliath. Think of that story. And they sent out Goliath. And Israel said, well, who are we going to send? And and, and so they chose David to go out, and it was this one-on-one, mono-imano kind of deal for total domination. Remember that? This is kind of what the author has in mind. Jesus is our one. He's the one who goes out and fights our battles for us. He's the one who leads the way, who again, through his death and resurrection, has led the way to the side of the Father and is providing salvation and hope and possibility for us. He is our leader. He is our champion. He is our brother. I mean, I I hope that you'll spend a little more time with this idea this week. But Jesus, as this author wants to suggest here, is, is our brother. We are his sisters and brothers. We share the same father. And Jesus has has not seen himself too separate and distant and beyond to stretch out his arms and say, brother and sister, come to me. Not a, not a big brother that we resent because he was smarter or better looking or, you know, could do more miracles. Um, not, not, a, not a bigger brother who is condescending and looks down on us and You'll never be any good, little brother or little sister. But a, but a big brother who, who in the, the, the understanding of the best big brother there could ever be, comes with great comfort and great love and great grace and, and extends his arms around us as family. This great family of faith with one father says, I'm here. I'm your brother. There's nothing I wouldn't do for you. There's nothing I haven't done for you. It's not only our brother, he's our liberator. This passage goes on to talk about this Jesus who has become like us in every way. The book of Hebrews will be about this throughout, but here, introducing this theme that Jesus, there wasn't anything that he didn't experience. He entered into humanity, the full expression of it, even to death, so that he might set us free and break the power of death and our fear of it. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. With Paul, we say to live is Christ and to die is gain. Jesus is our liberator. He sets us free. And the last one that we'll 
talk more and more about in weeks to come, but Jesus is our high priest. The high priest for the Jewish people would offer the sacrifice. We know about that a little bit. Offer the sacrifices on behalf of the Jewish people. But Jesus now had offered the perfect sacrifice for our sin. And it wasn't a goat or a calf. It was himself. His very life. His life for ours. And again, it's as if this writer wants us to know Amidst, amidst his great word of warning that there is nothing that Jesus wouldn't do, nothing that in fact Jesus has not done so that we might hold on to faith in him and move forward in faith. Friends, the great gospel, gracious word of this text is that drift does not have to happen. That there is one in the midst of our temptation and you can even hear that last verse who has known everything that we've experienced and is able to help us and our invitation is to turn our eyes to this very jesus he is enough for us to these hebrew people tempted and tried and tested to us ourselves up against who knows what in this past week and in this week to come, trials and difficulties and challenges and the temptation to focus all there and to drift here, God says, here's one. Here's one who can help you bring the focus right where it needs to be. Let's stand together, can we? God, thank you so much for this, uh, this word of warning and and we're not ones who, who like uh, necessarily to be reminded of our problems. <laughs> we're not ones necessarily who like to be reminded of our, of our humanity and our, our proneness to wander. We're not ones who like to have the mirror held up in front of us and have to acknowledge that that drift happens. It's happened to us in the past. Maybe even, God, at some level, it's happening to us right now. And we've, we've lost our focus. We've, we, we've stopped listening. Maybe we're listening to other things. We've, we're paying attention to other things. We're, we're not paying attention to what we've heard. We're not pressing forward. We're, we're maybe holding on, maybe maintaining the status quo, but we just recognize, God, that you desire so much more for us. And we recognize as well that as long as we do that, we're leaving ourselves vulnerable. We're leaving ourselves wide open. We're leaving ourselves with the potential of drifting from this faith that you have offered to us. And so, Jesus, may we just own our drifting right now. We just own that. May we just, in our own hearts and minds, just acknowledge that. And, and call it what it is. Because it's when we come to that place, Jesus, I know in my own life, and I think for many of us here, it's when we come to that place where we again just recognize the depth of our need for you. And we're reminded by your scripture here today that you are sufficient, Jesus. 
So, God, help us to be struck by this one who has entered into humanity, who has taken on our every human frailty and weakness, and who is yet God, and who has even taken on death that he might conquer death. And with him who lives, might we too live, both now and forever. We pray this in Jesus' name.